Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, July 30th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out why Mississippi doctors say people who get vaccinated are less likely to contract hepatitis. Then, after Everyday Tech, the first African-American to attend the University of Mississippi will be inducted into the university's Hall of Fame. And we'll hear about a Southern artist known best for his notable Blue Dog series. Everybody knows the Blue Dog, but you don't know these works. You really don't. And if you haven't been in into one of the galleries, for example, you don't know those works. And that's because there was no mass production here. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Advocates are recognizing World Hepatitis Awareness Day by encouraging people to get vaccinated. According to the Mississippi State Department of Health, Mississippi saw a 50% decrease in hepatitis A infections and 11% decrease in hepatitis B infections between 2011 and 2015. Dr. Begrashi Nevakele is with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood how the disease affects the body. So hepatitis is uh, basically, uh, when you say itis, it's basically inflammation. And hepatitis is liver, so it's basically liver inflammation. And it can happen because of a variety of reasons. And one of them is viruses, which can cause hepatitis. So that's what uh, basically hepatitis compromise, uh, states. It's a liver inflammation, which is occurring. Now, um, with the different types of hepatitis, and if you could list those for me, um, do they differ or are they basically sort of the same thing with a, a very small variants? There are, so the, among the hepatitis uh, which are caused by viruses, uh, these are hepatitis A, B, there is hepatitis C, and then there is non-ABC hepatitis, which is hepatitis D and hepatitis E. So these all are uh, different because they are caused by different modes of transmission. They can result in different uh, severity of infection as well as different uh, complications. In the sense, some can become chronic, some can uh, get resolved quickly, and uh, some can have a more uh, bad uh, health uh, complications as compared to others. So is there anything new that's come uh, from just the continued study and research of hepatitis? Is there any new discoveries or any new information that you could share with us? As of now, from my knowledge, we haven't had any new discoveries or information. In The only thing will be in the past few years, uh, we have been able to uh, achieve progress in hepatitis C treatment. So the treatment uh, which was given before, which mainly included IV medications, we have been able to give patients oral medications for hepatitis C treatment with cure of hepatitis C, which has been one of, uh, one of the great innovations in the past few years. Who's most likely affected by it, and um, how could people prevent hips? Sure. So it's very difficult to pinpoint where they, when they could have gotten the infection because you can remain asymptomatic uh, for a long period of time and then 
just because um, there was an abnormal some other test result they might have get hepatitis b or hepatitis c diagnosis so it's difficult to point out hep c is usually also seen commonly in uh, young patient population as well young in the sense adult patient population because it's more commonly associated with iv drug use as well so that's why we uh, kind of screen this patient population uh, uh, who have those high risk factors and immediate screening is important so is there a way that you can prevent like prevent the virus period or is it just sure yes so one of the biggest things is that hepatitis a and hepatitis b are both vaccine preventable diseases so there are a lot of measures which can be done to prevent this infections but the fact that we have vaccines to prevent hepatitis a and b is uh, one of the major steps which has been taken by the cdc and who to vaccinate uh, a population to so that they don't uh, acquire this infection later on Dr. Bhageshri Navakili is an assistant professor of infectious diseases at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Navakili, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Stella Armstrong says almost 20 years ago, she was diagnosed with one of the most aggressive types of hepatitis, hepatitis C. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood she's unsure exactly how she contracted the disease. Um, I was diagnosed in 2000 and I was a genotype 2. Do you know how you might have contracted it? I'm thinking because it's it said the stigma around it. It's probably from using drugs when I was younger. And the other way that I could have contracted is I lived overseas. My um, parents were in the military, and so we lived overseas. And it could have been from shots and uh, the air jet guns that they use to give shots to people in the military, it could have been from that. It could have been from, you know, living in the Philippines. It could have been from a, a different variety of exposures. The only reason I think I seem to think more and fall back on probably from drug use, or it could have been from a tattoo, um, is because I had both my children, um, and I never had been diagnosed, or they never told me that I was. I had hepatitis C. So did you have any symptoms at all? Like when you were diagnosed in 2000, how did that happen? I was going to rehab at that time, and they had a free service that came in, and they offered to do HIV testing, STD testing, and hepatitis C testing, and that was how I first found out that I had it. Um, I did not know what it was, and at that time there was very little information about it. So, um, and there was a treatment for it, but it was very, very harsh. It was sort of like a mild chemo is what I was told. So I discussed the options with my doctor and he, he said he thought that it would be fine. Um, I could live at that time. I was 39, 40 years old. And at that time he told me, you know, I, I said, can I live another 20, 30 years and be healthy and just be fine? He said, absolutely, as long as you don't take Tylenol and you don't drink. And I said, okay. I monitored it. My doctor monitored it with me for about 13 years before I finally, um, they came out with the new treatment. In 2013, it got approved FDA and they released it, released it in 2014. Now, by that time, my my liver enzymes had 
tripled and I, I had started to feel sick probably about 2012. Um, and it was mostly feeling tired, feeling like I had the flu all the time, achy, achy joints, but super tired all the time. I was just, I was just exhausted. Uh, getting dressed in the morning was difficult. Like I just was out of breath. And that's when it started to really um, get bad. But like I said, the best way for me to describe it is I felt like I had the flu 24-7. Now, the new treatment that you mentioned, is that the oral um, treatment? Yes, it did. Um, I was on it for 12 weeks, and um, it was very successful for me. Within three days, my liver enzyme shot down, and I was um, clinically cured. So how do you feel these days now? I feel great. I'm full of energy. I have a second chance at life, and I still have uh, achy joints, and I do have some swelling from time to time, but my doctor says those effects stay in your body for a long time if you've lived with it. Hepatitis C survivor Stella Armstrong with MPB's Ashley Norwood. Coming up, it's Everyday Tech. Then find out which notable Ole Miss alum is being inducted into the university's Hall of Fame. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more at woodwardhines.org. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Michelle McAdoo with Woods Couture, and today we're discussing Internet monitoring and safety. So what are some things to consider when using the Internet or your mobile device? Well, Michelle, one thing I think people really need to think about when they're talking about safety and the Internet is where are you connecting from? Because if you're connecting from in your home or in, in a private in environment like that, your your safety considerations may be different. But if you're in a coffee shop, a local restaurant, there's no telling who else could actually be sharing those connections with you. So when we're talking about being safe from that aspect, you really kind of need to be aware of your surroundings. Now, if you're also in a work environment, you really need to pay attention as well to what are your employer's expectations when you're using that Internet connection. So... Are they looking for certain things? Are there communications that you're making that are actually prohibited? Maybe you're making a statement about something that happened at work and it's really a little bit more private. Maybe it's a personnel-related thing. You can't be putting that all out there. So you really need to be mindful of your audience and be mindful of your location. And another thing that we really need to look at when we're doing this is we got to think about what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you just trying to put a joke out? Are you just trying to talk about what your day's been like? Or are you trying to attack someone? Are you really angry? That can really make things take a dangerous turn really fast. And we've seen that so many times. People who have that tendency of speaking before they think. You know, we we see that in so many aspects. We see that in in public figures. We see that in our neighbors. We see that even possibly in our kids' friends, that sometimes that reflection was not a reflection of who they were, but it was a reflection of a moment in time. And we really need to watch out for that. And, Wilt, since you mentioned being responsible on the Internet, Safer Internet Day was actually created to help teach the younger generation how to be responsible when using their mobile devices. 
Well, we really do, because unlike maybe when you and I were growing on up, a lot of the dangers we were exposed to were right there in our neighborhood. And you had you had neighbors looking out and you had people that you went to church with down the street that were able to look out for you. And, you know, if you did something really crazy, by the time you got home that night, your mama knew. And, but nowadays, with a digitally connected world, you're not just connected to the folks that are in your neighborhood. You're connected to folks down the street, across town, in the next city, state, or even country or continent away. So, so the dangers have unfolded exponentially. And here's the other thing. A lot of our younger generation today has grown up knowing nothing but this technology, whereas you still have parents and grandparents who this is fairly new to some of them. And so what you have is a digital disconnect, really, and that is is that these kids and younger adults are using tools that those who supervise or those who are guardians of, parents of, they have no idea what's really going on. So there's there's really a, a disconnect in language there. So it's encumbered upon us as the adults, as the, you know, like when it comes to my kids, it's my responsibility to take on a little bit, learn that some, and have those conversations with my children so that they understand that the decisions you make today can impact you for the rest of your life. So, Michelle, Safer Internet Day really gives us an opportunity to put a little bit of focus on this technological tool that has come into all of our lives. We're all so connected with the Internet, with websites, with apps, with social media, with texting, and with all these other new, exciting, and instant ways for us to communicate. We need to do those things safely. We need to do those things responsibly because that has really become a challenge sometimes when you get people behind a keyboard that all of a sudden don't necessarily feel responsible for their actions. So, again, we need to focus back and think about where are you connecting from, what are you trying to do, and what image of yourself are you putting out there, and make sure that it's an accurate reflection of who you are and also of who you want to be. We will talk more about Internet monitoring and safety on Everyday Tech, the show that comes on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. You can send us an email to everydaytech at mpbonline.org. For Wilts Couture, I'm Michelle McAdoo. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. James Meredith, the first African-American to attend the University of Mississippi, will be inducted into its Alumni Hall of Fame this October. In 1962, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy called in federal marshals to escort James Meredith to the University of Mississippi in the face of violence on campus. Now, 85 years old, Meredith says his mission from God was to challenge the fear so many African Americans faced. To expose and challenge that all-pervasive fear that kept blacks not only in Mississippi, but all over America, all over the world, in their place. It was fear. And James Meredith had a mission from God to challenge that. Attorney Bobby Bayless is president of the Ole Miss Alumni Association. He says he has seen change since Meredith first came to campus. I'm 60, almost 67 years old, and uh, I was a very 
young man, uh, not quite 11, when when uh, Mr. Meredith entered the university. So I have, uh, as a immature person, I experienced it, and as a mature person, I've lived to see the changes that have occurred since he did what he did. Quite a uh, humbling um, experience. Leslie Burrow McLemore is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Jackson State University. He says he's happy to see the induction finally take place. Oh, I think it's a great honor, uh, a singular honor for Mr. Meredith, although I am a bit surprised and shocked that it's just now happening. I uh, assume that perhaps before now that Mr. Meredith had been inducted into the Alumni Association Hall of Fame, but better late than never. What does his attendance at that university, being the first African-American, mean in your estimation? Well, he was a trailblazer because not only did he provide access to the University of Mississippi for uh, people of color, but for the other state-supported white universities, not only in Mississippi, but primarily across the American South, especially the Deep South, because at that point in time, most of the Deep South white universities did not admit black people uh, and other people of color, quite frankly. James Meredith is one of five inductees, including longtime U.S. Mississippi Senator Thad Cochran. Coming up, find out how you can see the works of the late Southern artist George Rodriguez. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org slash car tag. We'll see you on the road. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians now have the chance to view the art of the late George Rodrigue. The artist's work is on display at the Orr O'Keefe Museum of Art in Biloxi. Rodrigue is said to have set out to graphically interpret the Cajun culture. He... He'd studied art at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette and Lafayette and at the Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles. Widely known for his early 1990s Blue Dog series, Rodrigue passed in 2013. His wife, Wendy Rodrigue, is working to ensure his legacy lives on. She tells MPB's Evelina Burnett about her last husband and his her late husband and his work. Everything in this room is a true one-of-a-kind original piece. So I started with the idea of these high ceilings, this almost jewel box sort of presentation. And also, of course, when you walk into the gallery, unlike many museum exhibitions, it's not room after room after room. It's one room. So you have the opportunity to have a single art experience before you investigate the pieces individually. So I started with pieces that were in our home, which had very high ceilings. We lived in California, Central California, and I started with those pieces and thought I'll work the rest around it because those these pieces are 14 feet high and no one has ever seen them, but 
you know, George and myself. This was our sanctuary. So I'm sharing them for the first time publicly. Now what to do with the rest of the exhibition? Um, I chose works that George did in the last year of his life after he was diagnosed with a fatal illness. Um, he had lung cancer. Um, the doctors, George never smoked. They, they suspected it was brought on by uh, the paint fumes and varnishes um, over many years of painting in oil paints. He had switched to acrylic paints a number of years before, but the damage had been done. Um, he went into remission after those first three months of, of treatments, and so he had a good about eight months of really strong painting. So what do you do when you've been diagnosed with a fatal illness and you're somebody who has a public audience? Well, you, you make people see things that they didn't see before. It's your chance to make the real statement you always wanted to make. So I would argue that these are the finest works that George Rodriguez ever did, and I'm really thrilled to be able to present them here. And they're on a variety of different types of canvases, and, and is that right? That's correct. Um, we called the exhibition Rodrigue's Blue Dog Discovering Late Works on Canvas and Metal, because a lot of people don't realize how excited George got about metal. That was really in the last decade of his life, and increasingly slow in the last five years of his life. The way he got started working in metal was actually um, for children's hospitals. He wanted to um, create something that would bring joy to um, an otherwise um, scary situation of children being in the hospitals. George had polio as a child, and the vivid memories of the children in the iron lungs stayed with him all his life. He talked about it even in his last weeks. And so he came up with this idea of doing works on large, very highly reflective surfaces, mirrored, and then for the children's hospitals, they're, they're quite large, they're about 10 feet tall, um, he would put a heart in the center of the dog and leave that part blank without paint so that the, when the child walked up, up or was carried up or wheeled up. They saw their face in the heart of the dog. We installed them in children's hospitals, about a dozen of them around the country. The first one at Le Bonner in uh, Memphis, Dell Children's Hospital, Texas Children's Hospital, on and on. We have one of those pieces here that he did for our home. However, because it was for our home, it's not with the heart, it's with a tie. The others are in the hospitals, so it's not here. And what kind of paint did he use? Um, It was interesting because for those, he had a really hard time. It is a form of acrylic paint, but he didn't water it down. He had to really use it thick. Um, It took him two years to get a a chrome, he called it chrome, the material that he could paint on that everything didn't slide off. So it was actually more research in getting the materials than it was to do the pieces because, as you'll see in the exhibition, those particular pieces were executed very quickly in a childlike sort of manner with very joyous and bright symbols and things that will hopefully, you know, inspire and turn something tragic into something happy. Is there anything else that you hope that visitors to the exhibit will notice or also come away with and and think about after they leave? Well, for one thing, we do have uh, one early piece in this exhibition. It's a painting called Lugaru. It's from 1991. It is the first painting that George Rodriguez did in 25 years that did not include a landscape in the background. Worth checking out. It's also his last painting in oil, one of his last paintings in oil, because of the switch due to the health concerns that I told you about. Um, I would hope that people would see that painting and tie it in with the early works that we're all familiar with here in the South um, and hopefully recognize the transition and recognize the mature genius 
um, that this bright, shining light George Rodrigue gave as a gift to all of us. I would hope that people would come here and experience slow art, that they won't step in and you know spend more time reading the label than they do looking at the painting, but that they will have a joyous experience, um, a joyous Rodrigue experience. Rodrigue's Blue Dog, late works on canvas and metal, is on display until August 18th at the Orr O'Keefe Museum of Art. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10, it's Now You're Talking. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio.